The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading today from the full chapter of Acts chapter 26. I invite you to follow. If you're a little startled at that number, we did deal with Acts 20 last Sunday. You said, wait a minute, there's five chapters in between, and that's quite correct. We are taking a rather great leap forward in Acts here, not because any part of God's Word is unimportant, but we're dealing now with the complicated and much involved historical narrative of Paul being charged with false crimes by the Jerusalem establishment and going through a series of trials. And I've chosen not to deal with all of those trials, but rather to focus just on one of them as the representative trial, and that's in Acts 26. He was accused of things in Jerusalem, very violent opposition to him, despite the fact that the charges had no validity. He was uh, threatened. His life was threatened. He had to be transferred under guard of a large number of soldiers to Caesarea up on the coast of the Mediterranean. He's there now. He's been there quite a while in jail, first under a governor named Felix who thought maybe Paul would pay him a bribe, which is what was done in those days, and possibly get out of custody. But Paul did not do that. And so Now another governor has come in named Festus, and Paul has appealed to Caesar that he would be tried in Rome by Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. And uh, this governor, Festus, doesn't quite know what to do with Paul. So he brings in the half-Jewish king, Agrippa II, to listen to Paul and hope that between them they can figure out this case and describe it to Caesar. That's what's happening in Acts 26 as I read this chapter. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am making my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In my raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness of the things which have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes." so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and through the whole region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and the Gentiles." As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, O excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for these things have not been done in a corner." King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains." Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. If we had not had an extremely crowded week or in several weeks for national news, you would think that the most notorious and talked about news story would be a courtroom drama. In fact, the most notorious courtroom drama in America today should be the trial of Dr. Kermit Gosnell of Philadelphia. 
I'm wondering if there are some of you who are even saying, who in the world is he? After 30 years of doing abortions from an unsanitary facility in West Philadelphia, Gosnell is now on trial for eight counts of murder. One count for a woman, third degree count of murder for a woman he allowed to die by his neglect. Seven counts a first degree homicide for infants born alive in late term abortions whose deaths Gosnell guaranteed by a knife cutting their spinal cord. Those who work with him testify there probably were dozens who met a, a similar fate. Not surprisingly, the Gosnell trial has received only limited and back page coverage in our news media. Exposing it too widely would undoubtedly shed a glaring light on the worst horrors of the abortion industry, something our press will not allow to happen. Don't tell me there is not bias in the news. I do not believe it. The Gosnell trial is in fact not about a man who was greedy about the money he could make, not simply about a single criminal who killed people. It is about an industry in its most gruesome reality. And the boldest defenders of abortion on demand are uncomfortable with that exposure. Now, there's a biblical trial that we're looking at that similarly involves something far wider in its implications than just the fate of one individual. There was a whole cause being tried. Acts 21 through the end of the book tell of the apostle Paul on trial for his life. And charges were brought against them. They were vague. They were patently false. He didn't do the things he was accused of. And yet, at the end, he was executed. After years, not in one night like Jesus, who had those several trials happening in one night, For Paul, it took years with significant imprisonments in between. And, of course, he used those imprisonment times to write some of his wonderful letters. And I've said that to me here in Acts 26, we have the focused scene of these trials. It, It pretty much takes in the elements of the others. As Paul was before the Roman governor Festus and the Jewish king Agrippa II, His long odyssey in prison and on trial was never about Paul alone. It was always about what Paul represented. He represented the heart of Christianity. And more than that, you could even say he represented the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who was in that witness box right alongside his apostle. For brevity's sake, I have glided past, as I said, Acts 21 to 25, which elaborate the arrest and two earlier trials. And we come to this trial now where Paul had appealed his case to Caesar. He was going to be taken to Caesar, but the problem was the Roman official, Festus, didn't even quite understand what should he write up and send to Caesar and tell Caesar this was all about. It wasn't a clear violation of anything of the, of the laws of Rome, and, and Festus was trying to figure out, how do I not embarrass myself in writing up this case that I'm going to send on to Nero? And so he sought the help of this half-Jewish king with limited powers, Herod Agrippa II, 
to come in and say, you understand these peculiarities of the Jewish people. Maybe you can help me do this. Let's have an interview with Paul. Now, quickly, this is the fourth different Herod in the New Testament. You would be excused if you can't keep them straight. It's not easy. Herod the Great is the one who was around at the birth of Christ who tried to exterminate all the babies from Bethlehem, the, the very cruel one, the one who rebuilt the temple. Herod Antipas is the one who killed John the Baptist. Herod Agrippa I is the one we had dealt with earlier in Acts who died from that terrible death of intestinal parasites after he allowed himself to be glorified as a god. This is Herod Agrippa II, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He was fairly limited in his power, apparently a, a man who wanted peace with others, but he basically did what Rome told him to do. There's an interesting little uh, note, if you would look at chapter 25 in your text, when he comes into the hall, 25:23 says, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. The word is fantasia. They came in the midst of their fantasy lives, living theatrical lives of making an impression on others. That's basically what got them out of bed every day was to make a big impression, to wear their, their silk robes and their gold crowns and people to fawn before them and think they were important. So here we have these types of people, and with him, by the way, is one named Bernice, who was his sister, called his consort. Most of the ancient sources will say it was more than a rumor that there was an immoral relationship between this brother and sister. Here are these people judging the great apostle Paul. I feel that it's as though they're a bunch of squeaking mice judging a lion. What does it matter what they say in one way? This is like turning the world upside down, having these people be in charge of a judgment of Paul. But in comes Paul, and we have one description of Paul from outside the New Testament that talks about him physically. It says, not real complimentary, actually. I hope I, I don't know how anybody will describe me someday if they ever remember what I look like, and I don't care, really care if they do. But someone wrote a description of Paul and said he was a short man, balding, rather bow-legged, with a large hooked nose. Not real impressive looking. Here's that man, not too impressive compared to the king in his royal pageantry and Festus the governor with his governor's authority. And remember, too, he's been kept in prison for more than a year before this hearing. I don't know what prisoners wore, but I'm sure they didn't shave and get a hot shower every day. Paul probably didn't smell very good. He wasn't very impressive in this court. And yet the true royalty, the true aristocracy of God in this court was the Apostle Paul as he came in bound with his wrists bound by an iron chain. Now, three things I want to treat from his defense of himself here, and I'll try to keep my eye on the clock. But Acts 26, 1 to 15, is the first section where we see a heaven-sent revelation of Christ. Paul stands to defend himself and says, look, I have lived my whole life according to 
the Old Testament revelation of God, just exactly as have those people that have brought charges against me. The Pharisee party and the Sadducee party in Jerusalem have charged me. I myself am a Pharisee, one who is in that day a fundamentalist, one who observes the very letter of Old Testament law. And Paul says, the reason I'm here is because in searching and obeying out that law of God, I have discovered that all the law and the prophets and Moses and David and all of those writings point to one great person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promises of God that were made to our fathers and what they culminate in, Christ. In other words, Paul was saying that Jerusalem Jews want to kill me for being a fundamentalist like they are and for drawing the conclusions of the same Bible they read, which tells me that everything the prophets had to say, everything Moses had to say, leads to Christ. And as I believe in God, who was the great creator from Genesis, I believe that he too is the recreator who gives life from the dead. Why, he says, do you think it's strange that God should raise the dead? God is the one who gave life in the first place. Why should raising the dead be a difficult thing for this God is is the logic he's using here. It's vital for you and I to see what Paul saw here, that the Bible is not two books separated into watertight compartments called the Old Testament and the New Testament. I believe someone is present today, and I'm not going to embarrass him, but someone who came to Christ in a dramatic way in adult life knowing almost nothing about the Bible And one of the first things that happened to him as a new Christian was he said, I had to go to the store and get a Bible. And I asked myself, do I buy the Old Testament or the New Testament? I think he was very pleased to find you got both between two covers. And it's not just two separate books between two covers either. It's one book between two covers because Paul is saying, look, as I searched the prophets and their message, what I found was the person to whom they were pointing Christ, the risen Christ, as if there was a neon arrow pointing all the way through the plot line of the Old Testament right at Jesus, who could be found just as easily in the five books of Moses as he is in the four Gospels of the New Testament. John chapter 1 claims that the Genesis creation was done in the first place by God and for God's Son. The Son was present at the creation. He was the object of the creation. Psalm 2 says that the nations one day are going to bring an account to what they have done with the Son of God. Moses prefigures and predicts Christ the Son. David is the great typology or pattern of what Christ would later be. 1 Peter in the New Testament chapter 1 speaks of Old Testament prophets and says, here's what was going on with an Old Testament prophet. Amazing language. It says, the Spirit of Christ was predicting through Old Testament prophets the sufferings and glories of Christ which would follow. That's a fantastic claim. The spirit who would reveal Christ was at work in Old Testament prophets. He was, Jesus was the theme, he was the hero, he was the pinnacle of the message of the Bible that Paul read and the Jerusalem hierarchy read. So Paul says, why? Why are they killing me for that? It's as if the same defense is is in view as with Martin Luther many centuries later. 
Luther came up against the establishment church and they said, Luther, you've got all these new doctrines. And Luther looked at what he had taught, justification by grace through faith and these things. He said, these aren't new doctrines. Have you read the Bible lately? Luther said, I am no innovator. I'm a renovator. I'm simply bringing forth what's always been there. And that's what Paul was claiming here. Heaven-sent revelation of the Old Testament showed Christ. But he took it further with a second aspect of that same point. In verses 9 to 15, he says, God even personalized that heaven-sent revelation for me. He didn't say this in his own words, but maybe Paul would have said off to the side, because I was a hard case. And God saw that he really had to grab me and get my attention. And so Paul writes about a great traffic accident on the Damascus Road. Ever listen to the traffic report before you go out in the morning? You know, stay away from Route 30 and 283. Big accident, Fruitville Pike and Route 30. We like Julie Gargata. You know, Julie Gargata and the news station. She's a perky little lady that tells us about the traffic. Well, Paul tells about a big crash on the Damascus Road. When a man who was full of hatred, hatred for Christ, hatred for Christians, collided with that living Christ on that road. He tells that it happened at midday, and I suppose the emphasis on midday was because he says, the light that I saw was brighter than the noonday sun. I'm sure the sun in Syria is pretty bright if it's not cloudy there, which it rarely is. And Paul said there was a light brighter than anything else, and I fell down, we fell off our uh, we came off our feet to the ground and so on, and, and I heard a voice, a heaven-sent revelation of Christ intended specially for me. Now, this is significant because an attorney would tell you that this kind of testimony is actually hostile. Paul actually becomes a hostile witness here. He's hostile to Christianity. He's not someone who was saying, gee, I, I really wish Jesus would appear to me. Uh, oh, I love Jesus, and I sure would like to see him. Absolutely not. He was a Christ hater. He hated anything that had anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth and those who claimed his name. And yet he falls on his face here. And after this collision, it's as if his hot-blooded agnosticism was left laying at the side of the road like a dead raccoon belly up hit by a semi. There was nothing left of the hatred and the vehemence of Paul after Christ collided with him. It was an undeniable, irresistible meeting of Christ and Paul. And it left Paul temporarily blinded and childlike and quieted, so much soft putty to be reshaped by the hand of God. A heaven-sent revelation of Christ is in the Old Testament Scripture, and for Paul at least, it was in uh, personal appearance. And that's why he could come to say eventually in Galatians 2.20, words that many of you know well, I was crucified with Christ. The old Saul of Tarsus died. He was roadkill on the Damascus Road. And a new man got up and went into Damascus and was filled with the Holy Spirit and given a new life as the Apostle Paul. 
so that not I, but Christ now lives in me. It's as if a torrent of the Holy Spirit like Niagara Falls poured through this man, cleansing him, transforming him, energizing him. He wasn't the same person. And now Paul didn't talk about resurrection as some kind of philosophical concept, some abstract idea. Resurrection was what had happened to him. He had personally been resurrected from death to life like Ezekiel's dry bones coming alive. A heaven-sent revelation of Christ is his first claim in his defense. Secondly is a short point. Besides a heaven-sent revelation, in Acts 26, 16 through 23 approximately, we see something here that I'll call a universal gospel from Christ. Paul says, I got a commission from Christ. Christ must have appeared to me for the reason that he wanted to commission me to do something. And verse 18 really crystallizes or captures what that commission was. He was to go to the Gentiles, particularly, and do this. And, of course, it would be God's power doing it. But he would open their eyes so they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was Jesus' commission to Paul. Everybody likes to talk about mission statements. Mission statements are very much in vogue in our world. You heard that our ESL ministry has a mission statement. Our church has a mission statement. Corporations have mission statements. Soup kitchens have mission statements. Well, Jesus gave Paul a mission statement. The power of a gospel of forgiveness and resurrection in Christ will work through you to open people's eyes and bring them divine forgiveness. You can't have a better mission statement than what chapter or verse 18 there says was God's charge to Paul. And how would he know anybody was responding to this? Verse 20 says they would respond by deeds done in keeping with repentance. Their lives would change. They wouldn't just say, good idea, Paul, I like the way you talk. think I'll come and hear you some more. Their lives would show a transformation that resurrection had happened to them as it happened to Paul. Now you say, why then? Why would the Jerusalem Jews be so upset to go after Paul? It really isn't difficult. It didn't have to do with the fact that he, he was a student of the Bible. They were students of the Bible. It had to do with this commission, this commission to take the message to the Gentiles. It had to do with that very word being uttered. In fact, one of their great accusations was that Paul had supposedly brought a Gentile friend into the inner court of the temple where no Gentile. There was a big sign that said, Gentiles, pass this sign, you're dead. In so many words, that's what it said. And they said, Paul brought a Gentile. He didn't do that, but they accused that he had. And he dared to say that Gentiles were going to be able to receive the blessing of God promised through Abraham. Imagine that. Why, the audacity of it. Never mind that if you go back and read what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, Abraham wasn't told you are going to be the father of one exclusive nation. Go read it. Genesis 17, 4. Abraham, you will be the father of a multitude 
of nations. And all through those covenant promises, it was given by God. The Lord said to Abraham, many will come and will respond and will hear because of what I do through my model nation of Israel. But Israel just heard Gentile and said, this cannot be. The man who dares to promise Israel's blessing to a Gentile has to die. Well, it only so happens that it was Jesus who gave Paul that commission, that all who trust in him, the crucified and risen Lord, would be his. Now, thirdly, I close with a longer response on what we hear in response to this message. I've condensed it a great deal here, a long chapter. But there were two worldly decisions made about Christ. I want to look at those two decisions about Christ. First from Festus, the Roman governor, then from the half-Jewish king, Agrippa II, indicating their responses to what Paul said. And they were different responses, but neither one was an acceptable affirmation of saving faith. Festus, first of all, is so eager, he bursts in, interrupts Paul. Verse 24, Paul, I recognize that you are an intelligent man, but you are out of your mind. You're a crazy man. Here was a governor who loved power and wealth and pleasure. We know a few things about Festus from secular sources. We know that he, as a Roman, was happy with pure material explanations of things, simple, practical ways of understanding things. And he was a man who had been educated in Rome and educated, I'm sure, from the time beyond the age of 10 or so to believe just as as you eventually dealt with Santa Claus in your mind, the Roman world helped its adults deal with the idea that gods, small g, the gods of Rome, were myths. And every adult in Rome admitted that. Of course they're myths. They're just stories. But here's a man, a learned man, a smart man, an articulate man, and Festus had never met such a man who spoke about an unseen, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign God as if he was the most real person in his universe. And worse than that, the idea that Jesus, a a man from Nazareth, a rabbi who everybody knew had died, is now alive, and not only alive, but ruling the universe. Are you nuts? Festus couldn't take it. Paul, you're insane. And the apostle reacted to Festus, not so much in this text, but in things he wrote, 1 Corinthians 4.10, where he said, once I am proud to be a fool for the sake of Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 5.13, he said, if we are out of our mind, there he, he acknowledged the exact same thing. He said, if we're out of our mind, okay, fine. It is for the sake of God. My insanity, Festus, is a blessed insanity. And imagine Paul might, might carry on a 21st century conversation with Festus if they both could be transported to the 21st century. Maybe he would say, Festus, are you going to try to convince me that the really sane and rational people of this world are those heading up state and federal governments 
who have no moral compass and cannot even find a way to make a budget? Festus, are you going to tell me that Wall Street bankers and investment people are those we should call the most sane individuals of our world? Festus, doesn't it look insane when a baseball player is paid $30 million a year? And Festus, what kind of madness is it when any 10-year-old boy with a laptop computer can access the most vile pornography that the world could imagine a way to produce? Who is really insane, O Festus? Not the one who on the basis of rational proofs and real history and the work of God by his powerful spirit brought forth his son into this world and exhibited that son. And by the way, Festus, it didn't happen in a corner somewhere, he says here. It happened very publicly. What's insane about believing the work of God in this world? It's the only rational thing that a person could believe. We'll go on to Agrippa's reply. It was more clever and more subtle. You see, Agrippa's the one that Paul was really addressing this whole chapter. If you notice, for example, 19, he kept saying, Therefore, O King Agrippa. He was aiming his message at Agrippa who knew the Scripture. He was almost as if Festus was sort of a, okay, you can listen, Festus, but I'm really talking to the king here because he knows the Bible. And Paul had challenged the king and really called him out on the carpet and said, King Agrippa, I know you believe the prophets. I know you believe. You know, he challenged him. Is this what you believe? Look at how clever King Agrippa thought he was. Paul, you really think you can persuade me to be a Christian in so short a time? That's what you say when you're embarrassed. That's what you say when you're not ready to make a commitment to anything, when you're a cynic who thinks that cynicism is a form of superior insight or wisdom, when it absolutely is not. Agrippa thought his response was the cool and calculating, you know, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not going to jump into this and, and carve out a position for myself right here and now. Are you, you must be nuts if you think that. I'll just remain aloof. Do you know 21st century King Agrippas who respond to everything about Christ and its gospel with an aloof, non-committal response? Wife, do you actually think after 12 years of dragging me unwillingly to church, you're going to make me a Christian? I'm not buying it. Agrippa wasn't going to commit himself to an unseen God because in his mind and his universe, he was God. And he needed the control of God. And he wasn't giving that up to anybody else. So you hear Paul's final word. After Agrippa had scorned Christian commitment as though it was somehow beneath him, do you think I'm going to do that? Paul said, I would to God that every man should be committed as I am and like me except for this chain that I wear. Paul wore an iron chain. But Agrippa and Bernice and Festus had chains that could not be undone eternally on their souls.
and they're chained today, as far as we know. You see, trust in the truth about the risen Christ was on trial in that Roman courtroom. And when three people went out and consulted, not publicly, but they quietly said among themselves, I don't see anything wrong with this. It's too bad that we have to keep this man and send him to Caesar. I, I don't see a problem with what he's saying here. In other words, it's like Agrippa was saying, I would have even confessed I believed that stuff, except I can't say it publicly. Oh, I would never admit it publicly. Who really had chains on them that day, folks? And I'm haunted by Agrippa's foolish question. Do you really expect me to decide to be a Christian, Paul? Yes, my friend, I do. I expect every man and woman and boy and girl, within the sound of my voice, to decide what the true rational, sane thing is to believe in. Not to please me, of course, but because a decision is going to be called for from you by Jesus Christ himself. The one who, in a sense, was in the witness dock that day is going to stand before you as your judge and say, have you decided? Have you understood what the evidence led to, the things that happened publicly in the world, as I came forth, Son of God was crucified on your behalf, rose on your behalf, have you looked at the reasonable historical evidence and said, my reigning Lord Jesus? The decision is sought from you. And I ask you today to consider the reasonable thing of joining Paul and millions of others of us in our blessed insanity for God. Go ahead and Festus, call it insanity. I proudly wear your label. I am proud to be a fool in the eyes of worldly wisdom for the sake of Christ. Because I today can say that the Spirit of God has shined in my heart to give me the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I want all of you to be able to say that too. Our Father, I ask today that we would see the verdict that is inevitable and clear and plain in your word. Thank you for making it so plain, and yet we know the The eyes of unbelief are blinded. Perhaps today, Lord, you're going to drop the scales from someone and the chains as well that they would see as Paul did. Turn around as Paul did. Turn around as Festus and Agrippa never did and call Jesus Lord. May you be praised. Amen.